my first year. Maybe it was just in these past few days. God has shown me some part of his will for my life. Uh, maybe it was a decision to read your Bible consistently, faithfully. Maybe it was a decision to surrender to the will of God or to full-time ministry. Or maybe it was a decision to uh, answer the call to preach or perhaps to go to a specific mission field. But how many of you would say in some way or fashion, maybe it was he led you to the girl you're going to marry. I don't know. But somewhere while at West Coast, you would say, God has worked in my heart and he has moved me to a decision in accordance to his will. If that's you, would you stand up? Hold this room. Some kind of a decision in the will of God that God has shown me here at West Coast. And I have obeyed that Holy Spirit's call. Good. You just enter a war. The minute you said yes to the will of God, in the slightest area of your life, you entered into a war. I want you to be seated and take your Bible and turn to John chapter 21. Jesus, way back in the book of Mark chapter 4, was walking one day by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And the Bible says, And straightway, or immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Just as you, at that moment when God spoke to your heart about some aspect of God's will in your life, that day on the shores of Galilee, Peter and Andrew left their nets and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Peter and Andrew said yes to the will of God, and when they did, they signed up for war. They would have some war with their own doubts at times. We find in the disciples' lives that often they wondered, is this really the Messiah? Is this really the one that has come to deliver us? They sometimes wondered if they would be taken care of. I'm sure Peter wondered how he was going to care for his wife as a disciple traveling around with the Lord Jesus Christ. They no doubt had some wars within themselves, within their own flesh. We know in the case of Peter, that Jesus had to say to him in Matthew 16, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. For thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Even late in Jesus' ministry, Peter was told by the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, Put up thy sword in its sheath. All they that take the sword will perish with the sword. Peter would hear the cock crow and remember the words of the Lord to him. Before the cock crowed, thou shalt deny me thrice. And the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. There were wars within their own hearts. There were wars with their own flesh. They certainly faced wars against Satan and the demonic world. 
There were times when there was resistance by the demon world to the work of the disciples. I think of what Jesus said to Peter in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. You see, young people, when you voted yes to the will of God, Satan voted no. You have entered a war with Satan. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 to that church, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. God knows the fields are white unto harvest. God knew everything that we heard this week in the missions conference. God knows the fields are ripe. The fields are white. And he knows that the laborers are few. So why doesn't he call more laborers? I believe God has called everybody he needs for the harvest. But we're still short. Why? Because Satan is really good at warfare. Satan's really good at winning right now. What strategy will Satan use in your life to defeat the decision that you have made to follow God's will. John chapter 21 and verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Canaan Galilee and the sons of Zebedee. And two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go fishing. The battle in the lives of these disciples did not start when Jesus left. It started while he was present. Did you notice it there in verse 1? After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples. Jesus is standing right there when Simon Peter says, I go fishing. We may think, well, the battle's going to be over the break. The battle's going to be, you know, when I get home. The, the battle's going to be maybe when I graduate. Or the, the battle's going to be somewhere down the road. No, it's going on right now. While you're here, while you're in this place. Now I want you to see with me this morning three battles in this war that we must be ready to fight. First, I see the battle with self. Peter says, I go a fishing. Now, if we were to say that, we would mean that we're going to take a day off. We're going to get a little rest or relaxation. We're going to uh, follow our hobby for a few hours and get away from maybe the grind of things. But that's not what Peter was saying when he said, I go fishing. 
When Peter makes this statement in the presence of these disciples and in the presence of the Lord Jesus himself, he said, I quit. I'm going back to what I was doing before you called me. Because when Jesus called him there on the shores of Galilee, he was a fisherman. And Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And now Peter is saying, I'm done with that. I'm tired of that. I'm weary in that. I, I, I just don't think I can go on in that. I'm going back to what I was doing before my decision. I'm going back to doing what I was doing before you called me. I. He's back on the throne. I. Go fishing. Our biggest enemy is ourself. I was preaching in the town, a revival, and the town had a radio station, a local radio uh, station, and the town was fairly small, and the, the, the owner of the radio station, he called the church where I was preaching one day, and he said, I understand you folks are having a revival meeting, you have a, a guest preacher in town, and, and uh, we'd like to have him come down and, and, and uh, do an interview with us. We'd like to uh, just ask him some questions, and so the pastor said, are you okay with that? I said, absolutely. So he set up a time and I went down to the radio station and met the producer of this particular uh, program. And he said, uh, we, we find an interview style really works well in our community. People like to get to know people that are in town for various reasons. And we interview lots of different people. And we I just want to ask you a few questions about what you do and why you're in town and all that kind of thing. And I said, fine, you just fire away and I'll do the best I can. It was a 30-minute program, and we got on the air, and boy, this guy really asked some good questions, kind of some softball questions, really, uh, that I was hoping for. He was asking me, well, tell us about you. You know, tell us about yourself. And I was able to give a little bit of my background, and, and of course, I focused on when I got saved, and I talked about getting saved and what that meant. He asked me about where I went to college, and I told him about where I went to college and why I went to college and how God worked in my life in college and called me to preach and so on, and and then he asked why I was in town. And I talked about the revival. And he said, well, what do you preach on? And I told him what I preach on. And I shared the gospel again. It was really going well. And I was thankful for the opportunity. We got toward the end of the program. And he, he said, now, Mr. Getz, we have a, I, I apologize. We have just about 30 seconds for this last question. But I want to ask you one more question. And we just have 30 seconds for an answer. And he said, uh, what is the biggest hindrance to what you do? And I said, sir, I won't need all 30 seconds. I can answer that in one word. Myself. This know also in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. When God points to the sign of the last days, he doesn't point to same-sex marriage. He doesn't say, oh, look at the crime. That's a sign that I'm coming back soon. Oh, look at the economic disaster. Look at inflation. That's a sign. Look at the political corruption. Oh, that's a sign. I'm, I'm, I'm going to return soon. No, God says the sign of the last times is people will be worshiping the creature rather than the creator. You see, we have developed a me idol. We don't have stone gods. We don't have wooden gods that we bow down to every day. But we have a me idol. 
We have an eye problem. We are a selfish generation. We can't take a picture of a flower without putting ourselves in the picture. I wonder how many selfies do you have on your phone? We, we, now we have, uh, we have self-care. You know. We have mental health days. It's amazing. My needs, my health, my comfort, my schedule. You need to understand something. In ministry, people die while you're on vacation. People don't just get sick while you're on the clock. We got to get past this me idol. If we're going to follow through our decisions. Because it's not about us. There's going to be calls to emergency on your day off. You better win that battle now over the me item. This emphasis that has permeated our culture that it's all about me, it's all about my needs and my comfort and, and we, we book everything around my schedule. The Bible says I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God calls for a living sacrifice. The word sacrifice in the Bible indicates death. At the Passover, they didn't take a, a live lamb and put him on the altar and light the fire. That lamb had to die. That heifer had to die. That bullock had to die. That, that wheat had to be cut down and placed on the altar. And then it was offered up unto the Lord. And God is saying, hey, I want a living sacrifice. I'm not asking you to go commit suicide to tell me how much you love me. I'm asking you to give your life to me as a sacrifice. Are we willing to die to self? Are we willing to have a funeral for self? Paul said this is a daily battle because he said in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. Every day that old flesh is going to get, want to get back on the throne of your life and rule your life. And every day we've got to battle with self. Here was the me idol. But notice also the me influence in verse number Three, the Bible says, Simon said, I go fishing. They, these other disciples in verse two, said unto him, we also go with I wonder, will you follow the masses or will you follow the master? Unfortunately, we love sometimes the praise of men more than we love the praise of God. But Jesus asked, how can you believe which seek honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? There's the me influence. But the me idol and the me influence lead to the me inability. In verse 3, they went out and entered into a ship. And that night they caught nothing. This shouldn't have surprised them. It shouldn't have been a shock to them that they were unsuccessful in fishing. For Jesus had told them, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. 
You see, we have the choice to live for self. We can serve ourselves. We can be all about self. But God says, you're going to catch nothing. Your life is going to be empty. Your life is going to be uh, uh, completely uh, 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 void of anything uh, that brings contentment or fulfillment. You see, when we're full of self, there's an empty net. When we're empty of self, there's a full net. That's the choice. We can live for self as Solomon did. Oh, he made him great works. He built houses. He planted vineyards. He, he, he made pools of water to water with the wood that bringeth forth the trees. He had men servants and maidens and servants born in his house. He had small and great cattle above all that were before him in Jerusalem. He had musical instruments and that of all sorts. He said, what's her my eyes desired? I kept not from them. I withheld not from my heart any joy. Solomon had it all. Then he looked at all that his hands had brought and all that he had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity. Vanity means empty. He's got everything. No, he had nothing. Because when you're full of self, the net is empty. It's only when you empty yourself of yourself that you will be full. No one is emptier than the person who's full of self. So we've got this battle with self. But notice, secondly, the battle with surrender. Now, God doesn't force us to do as well. If he did, there'd be enough labors. If God forced us to do what he has designed our life to do, we wouldn't need a missions conference because every mission field would have plenty of missionaries. Every town would have a church. Every church would have a pastor. Every congregation would be experiencing revival. You see, God calls you. And whether you answer or not, doesn't mean that, that God is going to just give up on His will for your life. Your, your obstinate will does not cancel God's omniscient will. Just because you say no, God doesn't say, oh, okay, that's fine. Do whatever you want to do. The problem is often we're not willing to surrender. God is called. And he doesn't give up on that calling in person. Whatever God has led you to do in his will, he's not going to just forget about that when you do. I don't know if you remember the drama last Friday. We told the story of Charlie Hatchett. Charlie Hatchett was saved at the age of 13 at a camp. And he often said, and we quoted it in the drama, he often said, you know, I forgot about that decision. I forgot that I surrendered my life to God at 13. But he never did. And, 30, and 20 years later, at the age of 33, God reminded him, hey, you gave me your life. I want it. And if God has moved in your heart to make a decision, He's not going to forget about that just because you want to go make money. He's not going to forget about that just because you have other plans. I hope you don't wait till you're 33 to realize I've lived 20 years in vain. So this battle was surrender. Notice a distant presence in verse number four. They're out there. They caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, 
Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. While you're out fishing, God will be right where you left him. Jesus is standing on the floor right where they left him. They said, we're going fishing. Bye. No more. No more casting out demons. No more prayer meetings. No more preaching. We're going fishing. They go. They caught nothing. And in the morning, Jesus is still standing on the shore. You can get far enough away from God where you wouldn't even recognize him. They didn't know who it was. They heard his voice. They weren't sure who it was. You can get far enough out of the will of God to where you can't hear his voice like you once did. But notice a discerning perception in verse 5. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have you any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Discerning perception. John sees this miracle of the fish in the net. And he says, Peter, only the Lord could do that. You know, sometimes we pretend we don't notice the Lord. We, we pretend like he's, he's not really speaking to me. We, we, we pretend that we don't really think about the will of God. We, we pretend we're on a, another wavelength. But it was hard to forget that voice. And it was hard to forget about those hands that could do such a miracle. And truly it was, for we see a divine power. In verse 6, they, they, they throw this net on the other side. And, and, and the Bible says the, the net was now full of fish. Peter, he girds his fishers, coat on him in verse 7, for he was naked and cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from the land, but as it were 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of great fishes and hundred and fifty and three and for all there were so many yet was not the net broken. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament whenever you find fishermen they're always mending their nets? <laughs> that phrase they were mending their nets. It's always there. Why? Because the nets were always breaking. These nets were made of, of cloth and the water and, and then the sunshine as they would dry them each day would, would, would fray that, that cloth, that, that, uh, that substance, and then they would break. And so the, the fishermen were always mending their nets. But I want you to notice something here. This, this net was full of fish, 153 in one net. The Bible says the net was not broken. Young person, can I tell you from the Bible and from my own experience that whatever God calls you to do, the net won't break? 
You're, you're discovering here in Bible college that when God called you, you know what? The net doesn't break. He, he'll supply your needs. He'll provide for you. The net won't break. Some of you think, Brother Gatch, have you seen my balance? <laughs> I ain't nowhere close to $500. The net won't break. If you're here because God called you here, the net won't break. Some of you seniors are a little overwhelmed by these opportunities all around us these last two days. And you're thinking, oh my, they want me to do this and they want me to do that. And I don't know if I'm trained to do that. And I don't know if I can do that. The net won't break. You follow God's will. The net won't break. And to him that's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I'm a pastoral major and they want me to teach first grade. <laughs> I was a pastoral major. I never pastored a church a day in my life. My first year out of college, I taught in a Christian school. That was a joke. But the net didn't break. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thy stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Nothing. That, that country in the Middle East is not too hard for God. Learning that language of Japanese, it's not too hard for God. Teaching kindergartners, that seems too hard for God. <laughs> it does to me, but not to God. Wherever God puts you, then that will not break. You just have to win the battle with self and the battle with surrender. And finally, we see the battle with service. Now, that word rubs our flesh wrong. Because serving is not glamorous. Serving is not appealing to our flesh. We want to be served. But understand that it is in service that we are able to be the most like Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now this service requires a supreme preeminence. These disciples come to the land and... They get there, Jesus already has a fire going in verse 12. He says, come and dine. 
And look at verse 15. So when they had dying, Jesus saith unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Here was a supreme preeminence that Jesus needed to hear from Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? I, I, I believe that Jesus, when he asked that question, is pointing to the fish on the fire. Or maybe the fish flopping in the nets over on the boat. He's not asking Peter, Peter, do you like me better than fried fish? He's asking him, Peter, do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than what this world can offer you? Because a few hours ago, you said, bye, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to the old decisions. I'm going back to the old way. I'm going back to before the will of God. And God said, wait a minute now, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than what this world has to offer you? Jesus already knew the plan for Peter's life. He knew the plan for Peter to preach on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people would be saved. He already knew that. He already knew that Peter would be one of the writers of the New Testament epistles. God knew that God was, he was going to use Peter, that Peter was going to die a martyr's death. But he said, hey, Peter, before we can get on with that, i got to know, do you love me? Do I have supreme preeminence in your life? The summer between my junior and senior year in college, I, I did an internship at a local church up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the Woodcrest Baptist Church. I had done that same internship the summer before between my sophomore and junior year. I went back a second time and worked in that church. And at the end of the summer, I was going to need to leave a couple weeks before school started to get back to college for preseason football practice. And uh, we were coming in two weeks earlier than all the other students. We had these two-a-day practices and all that kind of stuff back in the day. And, and uh, we could stay in the dorms during that time. And they told us, uh, if you're coming back, you've got to be in by Saturday night, 10 o'clock, curfew. Uh, and then you've got to be in church Sunday morning. And then Monday, practice starts. So I had made all those arrangements with the church I was serving in. They knew, even before I went that summer, that that was the plan. It had been this plan the summer before, that I was going to leave a little bit early uh, for my ministry there and come back. And so I had made those arrangements with the church and got to thinking about that drive back to the college in southern Wisconsin. And I got to thinking about a a young lady that I had been friends with for a while, since my freshman year. She had already graduated. She was teaching in her home church in Rockford, Illinois. And uh, we had been friends and had 
dated, I guess some would say. But we were both very busy in our lives and really hadn't talked about any future plans, per se. But, you know, everybody thought we were heading in that direction, I guess. And I thought about her and I thought, you know, Rockford, Illinois is not exactly on the way from Minneapolis to Watertown, Wisconsin, but it's, it's kind of on the way. It's actually 180 miles out of the way, but, you know, I hadn't seen her all summer. I didn't, we didn't live in the day of cell phones. We lived in the day of stamps. <laughs> and uh, those letters were few and far between. And I, I, I miss seeing her. And I, I, I wanted to see her. And so I called her. And I said, uh, hey, I'm coming back to college on Saturday. And I got to thinking, if I left early enough, I, I could make it to Rockford by maybe around noon and uh, spend a few hours in the afternoon with, with your family and all. And I said, would that be okay, do you think? And she said, well, why don't you talk to my dad? So I talked to her dad. He was not a saint man at that time. I said, Mr. Brock, would it be okay if I came by on Saturday? And he said, sure, we'll have a cookout. And uh, we'll invite the whole family. I thought, great. <laughs> and so, uh, anyway, I got up early on Saturday and left Minneapolis all packed, ready to go, and got to Rockford about noon, and they had uh, the backyard barbecue going, you know, and all the relatives. And, and so, uh, great, family reunion. And, uh, so uh, we had a good time. We, we ate, and we, we talked, and, and uh, as some of the family began to uh, leave and go to their place, uh, she and I were sitting on the back of my car in the driveway of 637 Atwood Avenue, West Rockford, Illinois. We're sitting on the back of my car, just talking. We're just having a normal conversation, you know, talking to her about the summer, and, that I had had, and she was talking about her summer, and we are just going back and forth, kind of getting reacquainted. And I suppose we had been sitting there maybe about an hour, talking, and her dad was in the backyard putting some things away, getting the grill cleaned up and putting it away, and he was out there doing some stuff, and we were just sitting there talking. And all of a sudden, out of the clear blue, I mean out of left field, out of nowhere, she looks at me, and she said, John, do you love me? Well, we had not used the L word yet. <laughs> and I was not prepared for that question. And I just kind of froze. My brain stopped. My mouth stopped. Everything stopped. As I tried to come up with the right answer to that question. And I kind of swallowed and paused. And she's looking at me in anticipation. And I said, I don't know. I mean, I knew I still loved football. <laughs> I was going back for my senior year, two days. I was in shape. I was ready to go. My last year of football. I, I, I love football. Did I love her? I don't know. I love college life. I, I love the dorm. I, I, my parents lived one mile from the Bible college I went to. I stayed in the dorm all four years. I loved it. I loved it. I loved the horseplay. I loved getting in trouble. I, I, I loved all that stuff. 
Seriously, I, I love being around guys in the dorm, just having a good time and fellowship and all that stuff that goes on. I, I love it. Did I love her? I, I don't know. That wasn't the answer she was looking for. God's asking you that question. You love me? Well, God, I, I love church. I mean, I, I love being at my church. I, I love being with all my friends at church. I, I love singing. I, I love worship. I, I, I love that. I, I love preaching. I, I, I love going out soul winning. I, I, I love teaching a class. I, 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 yeah, but Lord, do I love you? I, I know. I mean, there's some other things I love too, like, you know, money, <laughs> good job, happiness, comfort. I mean, Lord, do I love you more than these? supreme preeminence which leads to a suffering people. Do you notice that three times Jesus said, do you love me? And each time Peter responds with an affirmative answer. And Jesus comes back with, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. You see, you cannot adore the shepherd and avoid the sheep. You can't say, well, I love God. I love the Lord, but uh, this ministry stuff, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in trying to win somebody to Christ. I'm not interested in discipling somebody. I mean... You can't claim to love God and ignore what he loves. Peter, you can't say I love you and then not love what I love. God so loved the world. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. When Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. What did you sense when you saw the multitudes this past week on those videos? Jesus sees those videos in his movement of compassion. Are we moved? Are those same scenes? A suffering people. We saw the multitudes this week. What were we moved to do about it? And notice a single purpose. It's interesting here, none of this really phases Peter because it's obvious now that his love is genuine. In verse 18, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee with thou wouldest not. That's a, a long compound sentence. What is Jesus talking about? Well, he tells us in the next verse. This spake he signified by what death he should glorify God. Peter said, a few, or Jesus said, Peter, a few hours ago, you said, I'm going fishing. Now you're telling me that you love me. 
Peter, if you love me, you got to understand something. It's going to cost you your life. Somebody's going to carry you whether thou wouldest not. A couple hours ago, you did what you wanted to do. You carried yourself where you wanted to go. You went back to the world. But if you're going to love me and you're going to follow me, then Peter, someday somebody's going to carry you where you don't want to go. And this spake he signified by what death he should glorify God. Peter, according to history, was martyred. Jerome, the historian in Fox's Book of Martyrs, said when Peter was brought to the place of execution for his crucifixion, he requested that he be crucified upside down. For he said, I am not worthy to be crucified in the same manner and form as my Lord. Thus Jerome says they crucified Peter with his head downward on the cross and his feet upward. Peter got it. But Peter, like us, comes back with something interesting. Look at verse number 20. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved follow, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Isn't that like us? Okay, Lord. I'm going to the mission field. What are the rest of these people going to do? Okay, Lord, I'm surrendered. What's she going to do? Okay, I'm going to go soul winning. What's the rest of the crowd church going to do? And notice Peter. Notice the Lord's response. Jesus said to him, If I will that he, John, tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Peter. Get your eyes off of John. Follow me. See, the battle we're going to face, young people, is what everybody else is doing. And we got to stop worrying what the culture is doing and what churches are doing and what our companions are doing and what the critics are doing and what even Christians are doing. And we've got to follow Jesus Christ. With a single purpose. I remember my last football game. It was the third week of November, my senior year. We played North Dakota State in Fargo, North Dakota. Third week of November. Coldest football game I've ever participated in in the 10 years that I played football. It was, the ground was frozen. We arrived in Fargo late Friday night. It started to rain. It was right at the freezing line. It started to rain. They got us to some dormitories where we slept. We got up in the morning, and I looked out the window, and everything was covered with ice. That rain had turned to sleet. The trees, the ground, the roads were covered with a thick layer of ice. I remember looking out the window thinking, there's no way we're playing this game. There's no way you can play that. I can't even walk out the front door of the dorm without falling. But as the morning wore on, the sun came up and it began to melt some of the ice, but it was bitter cold and the wind began to blow. And by game time, it started to snow. So now the, the ground's 
covered me, you know, with the sleet and, and, and that frozen grass, and, and now it's starting to snow, and, and it was bitter cold, the wind, and, and we went out trying to warm up, and, and you just couldn't get warm. You just couldn't get loose like you normally would to play a football game. And the game started, and, and we were overmatched. We, we were overmatched by the weather as well as the other team. And we got beat. We got beat 40 to nothing. And we got shellacked in every aspect of the game, and we got beat. And we beat ourselves because we just, we just couldn't acclimate to that weather, and, and they beat us with more talent and more skill and all that. We just got, we got whipped. When that game ended, and we piled into our vehicles to head back to Wisconsin, to the south, <laughs> I remember thinking, you know, I'm kind of glad this is over. You play a game like that, it's just not fun. It's just not. I had taken a hit right on my, right on my quad in the first quarter, and that thing kind of balled up, and I, I, I played with that cramp the whole game. I just could not get it to loosen up. And, and then driving back to Wisconsin, that thing just cramped up, and I thought, you know what, I'm glad that this phase of my life is over. I thought, I, I thought many times playing football that it would be hard to ever give the game up. You know, it would just be hard to, to play your last game. And when it came, I was like kind of happy. <laughs> I remember turning in my equipment that next Monday thinking, this is okay. I had final exams, and my spring semester was easy. I only needed eight credits. Going to be able to go out preaching more, and I thought this is great. Then I thought of that girl again. I called her. I said, "Hey, um, Christmas is coming, and uh, I know you got some time off from teaching, and I've got a break between semesters. Do you want to get together?" She said, "Maybe." <laughs> I said, "Well, I have a plan." My plan was for her to come up to Watertown, and there was a restaurant that the administration would let us go to for special occasions. It was called the Fireside Inn in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. It's still there. I don't know what kind of place it is, but it's still there. It was an expensive place, and you could get permission to go if you put all the ducks in a row. And so I made arrangements for her for a place to stay, and, and she came up, and we went to the Fireside, and we had a great time, great meal. Just talked. We spent a couple hours there, got back in the car, and I'm driving her back to where she was staying, but I took a detour. I pulled into Washington Park. I'm sorry, Riverside Park, a place where I play a lot of football. <laughs> pulled under a street lamp, shut the car off. She looked at me like, what are we doing? <laughs> and I said, I have a question. She's okay. I said, will you marry me? She laughed. <laughs> That's not a good omen, guys, if she laughs. She said, when? When we're 85? We've been dating now four years. I said, no, I was thinking maybe this summer. She's looking at me like, what kind of a cruel joke is this? I reached in my pocket. And I pulled out a little white box. I, I planned to do this at the restaurant, but I chickened out. <laughs> pulled out the box, pulled out a, a diamond ring. Looks just like this one. 
except with a diamond on it. And hers is round, mine is oval. <laughs> Carrying suitcases through airports. But when I produced that ring, she said, yes. Now, how did she know? We've been married now 48 and a half years. How did she know that I loved her in December when in August when she asked me, I said, I don't know. What made the difference? Not a ring. The ring, the diamond ring in Western culture symbolizes commitment. When you guys buy that ring, you don't think you have any money now? Wait till you buy this little puppy. <laughs> I paid a hundred dollars for that ring. Yeah. It's making a dollar ten an hour. Ninety-three cents after taxes. Hundred bucks. You know what God is saying today to people? Show me the ring. John said, little children, let us not love in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Show me the ring. We can sing, my Jesus, I love thee. We can say in our prayers, Lord, I love you. We can walk an aisle and make a decision to go to a mission field. God says, how about going soul winning tomorrow? Let me see the ring. How about getting your projects done? Show me the ring. We're in a battle. We're in a battle with every decision you've made. It's a battle of self. It's a battle of surrender. It's a battle of service. But the battle can be won because greater is he that's in me than he that's in this world. A stand for prayer. Lord, I think our students understand, even after this week of making decisions, that the devil's going to fight us in a lot of different ways. And probably he's got an individual battle plan for, for each of us.